Welcome to Living Well into the Future, where we speak with individuals from different generations about the most pressing issues of our time, from food and housing to health care and climate. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. Our show is all about exploring potential solutions to complex problems, drawing on the expertise and insights of people from different backgrounds and age groups. Through meaningful conversations and thoughtful discussions, we aim to inspire positive change and make a real impact in our communities. So if you're interested in learning more about critical issues and discovering innovative solutions, join us for Living Well into the Future. Together, let's work toward a healthy and secure future for all life on this planet. Listeners to previous episodes of our Sustainability and Resilience series have heard about green building concepts. We ventured into biomimicry and looked into net zero energy buildings. You can find our previous episodes on WTBRFM.com and wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our new website, livingwellintothefuture.net. That's livingwellintothefuture, one word, dot net. Today, we're going to move beyond sustainability and resilience to regeneration. Our guests have been at the forefront in making regenerative projects part of the landscape. Projects that they talk about will be large and small, rural and urban. The standards that they are innovating and demonstrating are increasingly being adopted worldwide to counter climate extremes, loss of habitat, and loss of biodiversity. Our guests are Tenna Florian, a partner in Lake Flato Architects, who led the first project in Texas to meet the Living Building Challenge and is lead architect on a number of award-winning regenerative projects. Darby Prendergast, a project architect at Lake Flato Architects and a cattle rancher on Colorado's western slope on his family's regenerative cattle ranch. And our third guest, Heather Van House. Heather Van House is founder of Regenerative Environmental Design, an ecological design consulting firm that strives to connect natural and built systems in mutually beneficial ways. Working with the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, the U.S. Botanic Gardens, and the American Society of Landscape Architects, Heather facilitated and led the development of the Sustainable Sites Initiative Guidelines and Performance Benchmarks, the nation's first green rating system for sustainable design, construction, and maintenance practices that you'll hear much more about throughout this program. Heather, why... Do these certifications exist? What need are they filling? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, the most successful example has been LEED. And they really paved the way and they showed the market changing potential of these types of certifications. And when that began, I think that we saw a real shift in architecture. It's a story we all know in this industry in that the original version of LEED 
is now part of our standard building requirements. And architects started getting a lot of recognition for the sustainable work that they were doing. And so I think that opened up a model of thinking about how it's no longer good enough to just say that something is green. There's a lot of sustainability or greenwashing going on out there, and it can become difficult to understand if they're really doing something that's significant or if it's just another marketing strategy. And so one of these things that these third-party certification systems do, like LEED, like PEER, like SITES, is it's not the project team or the owner saying that a project has achieved certain benchmarks or sustainable objectives. It's a third-party organization who doesn't have a bone in the fight, if you will, reviewing it and making sure that you meet those qualifications. And so it provided real rigor to it. And then also, I think once programs, projects, owners begin to head down that path and show that they've gone through these processes and that an organization that is trusted, like the U.S. Green Building Council, like GBCI, has reviewed these projects and is putting their name behind it, then it becomes very easy for them to continue down that path and to be able to show their good work. And it also becomes more difficult for those that haven't taken that path. Because you can say, hey, I did the sustainable project. We use native plants and recycled content. Okay. And because of these metrics, we can now get into very detailed conversations about those. Um, what habitats did you explore with those native plants? What were the benefits to the biodiversity? What's the carbon sequestration? What's the amount of how much water did you reduce? And just go on and on into these metrics where you finally get to a point to where you're really talking about something special and you're really comparing. They started out as aspirational in terms of setting a standard that would accomplish a goal, the goal being sustainability, resilience, mm-hmm. and now regeneration. Mm-hmm. And as you have said, becomes a standard, and then the aspiration changes and the standards increase. Is that right? Yeah, I think competition is a powerful tool. (laughs) I think it's real powerful. And I also think that the discussions around how you achieve various standards and really defining what it is that you're trying to accomplish is also super important. And when a client commits themselves to going after one of these certifications and they put their project team in that direction, they have to have a deeper understanding of what it is they're trying to achieve and to engage in that conversation. And so every time you accomplish something, you get a better understanding of it, but then you also understand how you would do it better next time. And you no longer just want to do that same thing. You want to get better. You want to improve upon the success that you've seen in previous projects. And so that happens with individual clients. It also happens with project teams. But is the goal to have buildings that will be more energy efficient, that will be more resilient to extremes of weather, and that will in some way offset the impact that new building has? Are all those three things aspects of it? They are aspects of it. And another important piece of that is it requires the integrated design process and the introduction of scientists, researchers, economists, climate scientists, all of these folks that maybe were not a part of the building development 
team before or even a part of that community before. But now when we talk about what it is we're accomplishing, we have to rely on their research and the understanding of those systems to help us accomplish it. And so it's broadened the conversation. It's broadened the expertise of what it is that we're trying to do. So it's a living system. It has evolved. Yeah, as it should. And we have a ways to go, but we're getting there. And so one example for me, and this speaks to how the Sustainable Sites Initiative known as Sites came about, and it grew out of the recognition that the Sustainable Sites section of LEED was not enough. And it needed to be better. It was not enough. Why? Because it didn't take into consideration the full set of benefits known as ecosystem service benefits that landscapes can provide. It was looking at a little bitty tiny sliver of what landscapes could do. So you could have a platinum lead project that had an abysmal landscape with it and that missed all of these opportunities to accomplish these incredible things, not only for that site, but also for the broader community. Because landscapes influence the surrounding (laughs) systems, they're living. And so when we started working to improve and to talk about these metrics for landscape sustainability, we initially approached the U.S. Green Building Council with just that. Can we improve the sustainable sites piece of LEED? And they said what would really be helpful is if you would look at a separate rating system for all landscapes and then dive deeper into that. And so that's what we did with the Sustainable Sites Initiative. And we work with technical experts in soils, water, vegetation, materials, human health and well-being, operation and maintenance, education for seven years to define what is landscape sustainability, what are the performance benchmarks, where do we start and where should we end up? There were three partners. There were the Lady Bird Johnson Wildfire Center, which is a part of the University of Texas at Austin, the U.S. Botanic Garden, and then the American Society of Landscape Architects. Those were the three founders. And then underneath that umbrella were tons of organizations, civil engineers, ecologists, landscape managers, social scientists looking at human health and well-being and soil scientists, all of these wonderful folks coming together to talk about what it really was. And that's the piece to me that was the most gratifying in developing the standards. And then after we developed it, then we gave it to the USG, GBC, and GBCI, and now they administer sites. Well, amazing to see that now there are at least Last I looked, 290 certified sites around the world. Yeah, that's all right, isn't it? We've put a link to the Sustainable Sites website in our show notes, which you can find at livingwellintothefuture.net. That's Heather Venhouse. We'll go back to Heather, but now we'll turn to Tenna Florian a partner in Lake Flato Architects, and another project which has a certified restorative benefit. Tenna is co-lead of Lake Flato's Eco Conservation Studio, 
which designs land-based, highly sustainable projects from nature centers and visitor centers to conservation developments and eco-hospitality projects, among others. In addition to her other credentials, she was elected to the College of Fellows of the American Institute of Architects, given to architects who, and I quote, have produced distinguished bodies of work through design, urban design, or preservation. Tenna, talking about sustainability, resilience, and regeneration, could you tell me a little about the Living Building Challenge and then about your project that was the first in Texas to meet the standards? Absolutely. And I think stepping back a little bit and just talking about what sustainability means and how that's changed over time and how really the Living Building Challenge is, it tries to encompass everything that sustainability means when it comes to the built environment. I think initially the focus was very much on energy. How much operational energy do we use? And trying to use as little energy as possible through efficient buildings and through renewable energy. And then more recently has been a focus on carbon because whenever we're thinking of climate change, the most important thing is reducing carbon emissions. So not only looking at the carbon footprint of operational energy, meaning the energy you use and the carbon needed to create that energy, but also looking at the embodied carbon of a building. And that means the carbon emissions used for the manufacturing and construction of a building. So really looking holistically at the carbon footprint is one aspect. And then obviously there's water conservation, but the other piece is biophilic design, is understanding this innate human connection to nature and how that makes us healthier and creating architecture that strengthens that connection. And then resiliency. So that's all about just creating buildings that respond to the land in a smart way so that they're durable and can withstand the test of time, especially in this age of changing climate. So that's by responding to the land and understanding place, but it's also about using durable materials. So all of that combined makes the Living Building Challenge, which really sought to create a building standard where the land and architecture created something that was doing more good than harm. It was actually having a net positive effect, not only on the carbon footprint, but also on the ecological footprint of the building. So taking a building site and actually manipulating it and changing it, but in a way that it actually became more ecologically diverse and regenerative rather than doing harm, which even just green buildings do harm unless they are meeting all of these requirements of they need to be net positive energy. They need to be net zero carbon. They need to have full regenerative water systems that all the water is collected on site and used on site and the wastewater is treated on site. And biophilic design and healthy materials, all of this stuff goes into the living building challenge and the way they set it up. It's not a grading system. You have to do all of these things. You have to have healthy building materials. You have to be net zero energy. You have to have be net zero carbon. So that's why it's a challenge. It's tough, but it's it really, I think, changed the understanding and paradigm for what 
green building means. When you started the project, there were very few buildings that met the living buildings challenge, and yours was the first in Texas. So can you talk about that one specifically? The Josie Pavilion Project, yeah. It was completed in 2014 and became the first living building project in Texas in the ninth of the world. Unfortunately, now there's many more. Let me just start by talking about the client a little bit. Clint and Betty Josie donated their ranch just north of Decatur, Texas, which happens to be my hometown. The Dixon Water Foundation focuses on regenerative grazing, so really using the grazing of animals, which typically does harm to the environment, but doing it in a way with rotational grazing that actually restores the prairie and protects the watershed. So that is the focus of the Dixon Water Foundation. And the Josie Pavilion Project, really what the client wanted was a space to educate ranchers and a space to gather to have education programs with student groups, neighboring ranchers, regional meetings about the Dixon Water Foundation and this type of grazing so they could just have a protected indoor venue where they could provide education about this type of land management. And it was a pretty simple program. They wanted a space big enough to house, I think it was 150 people, and seated auditorium style, restrooms, a kitchen, and then another meeting space, a boardroom. And that became a library herbarium as well. Uh, so really simple program. And initially, they didn't come to us asking for a living building. But in time, as we did the concept design for the project, we talked to the client about this idea of making it a living building project, and it really appealed to them. And I think one of the main things was this idea of regenerative architecture and how it related very closely to their mission of land management and taking something that typically does more harm than good and changing that so it actually does more good than harm, which is what they do with their grazing and what the living building seeks to do with the built environment. What were the components of the Josie Pavilion that were regenerative? Regenerative just meaning that it creating more of a biodiversity in the place than was there before. The landscape is simple. We didn't even have a landscape architect on this because it's all about prairie. So they just replanted with native prairie grasses where there was disturbed land and all the land around it was already prairie. The disturbed footprint of the building was quite small. Actually, the Dixon Water Foundation already had a conservation easement, so we only had very limited area we could build in. In this case, we had 1.8 acres to choose from, and we hugged the building up against this live oak tree that helped create the courtyard space. And an interesting part of the building is how, and the client wanted this from the start, is to create a building that was comfortable year-round, as comfortable as can be without heating or air conditioning. And the buildings are arranged in a way where they welcome the cooling breezes for the summer from the southeast, and then the courtyard around the live oak tree and the buildings block the cold northwestern wind. So it's a building that kind of folds and unfolds and based on the given weather of that day to try and make the temperature in the building as comfortable as possible. So doing that, you also just create a connection to place which is part of the aspect of biophilic design is understanding that 
so regenerative to the human soul in a way, right? Because of that connection to place and biophilic design. Regenerative to the land because it's all about watershed protection and biodiversity comes with that, with the native prairie and the native grasses. And regenerative on a larger scale when you look at the carbon footprint and the energy, net zero energy, net zero carbon, and those other aspects of living buildings. So I think every aspect of the living building challenge has a regenerative component. Just it's interpreted differently depending on which aspect of it you're talking about. You're not just putting a plug of prairie grass in where there was degraded land. One of the aspects of the project to speak to biophilia was to take the seed heads from a lot of the grasses just right around the building, the different types of grasses, and we pushed them into the concrete slab at the threshold of the herbarium. And so you can see the different grasses. But just that had six different types of seed heads for grasses. But I would think that they have more than a dozen different types of grasses in the area. So that really does increase the biodiversity. Build find the link to the living building challenge in our show notes at livingwellintothefuture.net. Now that Tenna has illustrated the many regenerative aspects that were incorporated into the Josie Pavilion project, we'll turn to our third guest, Darby Prendergast, a five-year project architect at Lake Flato Architects, working on Tenna's team with Heather Venhouse and others on the Middle Trinity Project, which is designed to achieve the first sustainable site certification in Texas. You'll hear more about it later. Darby combines his experience on his family's cattle ranch, which uses regenerative methods, with his architectural training and practice. Darby, are there practices on the ranch that encompass the same principles of sustainability and resilience as Lake Flato is seeking in its buildings and development? Yeah, absolutely. I would say back to the sort of values that Ted Flato so eloquently articulates and indeed has a canon of architecture that he's built and all of the people at Lake Flato together find local resources, find available materials, and then find people who know how to use those things and put them together. And that's a very simple approach to something that has a really profound output. It's not just about trying to find the most sustainable product. That's great. It might be coming from Britain or somewhere else and being shipped across the sea. And then it gets complicated in all the ways that you can measure that. It may make sense to do something like that. But in a lot of ways, out here, most of the building we do on our outbuildings and stuff, we buy pine, it's beetle-killed pine that is sawn in local sawmills. And sometimes there's a little bit of a premium on the cost of that material as opposed to a two-by-four at Home Depot. But I can tell you, in the last few years, the two-by-fours at Home Depot went way through the roof, the expense of them, because of all the logistics of moving materials around the globe with the increased pressure from the pandemic and the logistics of moving material and coordinating all of that, that lumber got way more expensive. And the local sawmill lumber basically stayed the same because they're doing the same thing that they were, that the pandemic didn't really affect them. So they raised their prices a little bit to just because they could, but it wasn't the same dramatic increase in cost. And so I would say that living here and practicing architecture here very much aligned because 
there's a an approach which is find a solution that's simple that makes sense look ahead at what are the challenges coming up what are the challenges we've learned from who are the people around that have skills that have things to contribute and not have to focus on doing everything yourself and bring those things together and i think often the solution is it is something simple and it's something effective and that's something that ranching for cattle here and building buildings here too is a inevitable outcome because we just don't have all the time in the world or all the money in the world to build something that's not relatively simple and and effective at the same time. When we spoke before in terms of raising cattle, I think you mentioned rotational grazing, which is coincidentally one of the regenerative practices on the Josie's ranch where Tenna and the team built the Josie Pavilion. It's interesting to have this conversation because we're talking about ranching and design in the same sentence. And to me, they're one and the same, really, but they're often very different, distinct practices. But to me, design is really about connecting people to the land. And that isn't necessarily by reducing your impact. I think that reducing your impact certainly can be a part of that. I think overall, we have such high impact on everything we do. That is a virtue to think about. But I think really it's about connecting you to your impact. There's basically no way to build a building that doesn't impact its surroundings. You're digging in the dirt. You're disrupting patterns of nature. And so if you're going to do that, then how do you do it in an elegant way that connects the occupant, the human, to the nature which is outside the wall. And so you can think of a wall as a partition between interior and exterior, but you can also think of a wall as a relationship between interior and exterior anywhere, but particularly in a natural setting, in a green site. I look at those relationships really carefully, and I really look for the connection between the inside and the outside and the relationship across that wall, across that barrier, or look for the opportunities there. So it's about enhancing connection to the landscape. And I think through that, a building can, if you can make a human's experience more connected to the land, humans have this incredible ability to enhance life around them. And so buildings can really become a venue for that to happen. And I think regenerative ranching in very much the same way, you know, we approach our ranch and our cattle as a a way of enhancing soil. That's fundamentally the work that we're doing. And so how do we do that? We look to examples of nature and we try and find ways in which using the natural rhythm of grazing herds, we can over time build resiliency, build capacity within our soil. And just like with building a building that can connect its occupants to the land in a positive way, building a ranch where your inputs are very much aligned with uh, a natural cycle. And so we find a much higher yield now over the 25 years of regenerative ranching here, and we use no fertilizers. So that's another practice which we just made the determination that rather than bring in external nutrients, let's just figure out how we can use the nutrients that we already have here and move them around in a way that'll build soil health. And with healthy soil, we're finding increased yields in pasture and definitely an increased durability or capacity to withstand drought because there's more microbial action happening in the soil and there's more native grasses and those kinds of systems are more resilient to variability. That's a great lesson in regeneration and resiliency. Yeah, it's a burgeoning field. I think it's age old, and I think it's coming around to have sort of a renaissance. And so there's an incredible amount of resources out there 
to connect with in terms of regenerative ranching and grass-fed cattle. Heather also grew up in a farming and ranching family. Hers in the high plains of Texas that left her with lessons she's taken with her in her work. Heather, what's the basis of the work that you've done? I think my career to date, the the things that I enjoy thinking about, probably started from my childhood, growing up in a farming and ranching family. The high plains is dependent upon the Ogallala Aquifer. It's the largest aquifer in the U.S., and it's dwindling. It does not recharge at the rate that it's being consumed. And so there were some booming decades in there where the resource wasn't completely understood and agriculture in the high plains really soared. That has now passed because of the depletion or the depleting levels of the aquifer. And it left behind a farming framework that allowed me to really understand the competition and the tug of war that takes place between economics and natural systems. In order to be successful at dryland farming, you have to pay closer attention. You have to think about the soils. You have to think about how you manage the land to capture the water. You have to think about the crops that you use, about the cattle and the system that you use to manage it, all of that. And I was really just blessed to grow up in, in that area and with family that would talk to me and take me to work with them and to explain to me what I was seeing. Um, and my mother, she is a nurse and she was the local community health nurse. And so the other side of that was she was taking care of the people. And so there was a lot of conversations about how the land was impacting the people and how the dry spills or the wet spills impact folks. And all of that led me to seeing my world differently. Let's get on to the substance of regenerative design and all the fascinating projects that you're working on. Was regenerative design always part of the concept of what a sustainable site meant? I think that's a great question. And so initially, we started talking about landscape sustainability because the market talks about building sustainability. And I'm talking about built environments, buildings. And when you begin to understand what they're able to accomplish because of tools like LEED and how they talk about that, then you understand that for landscapes, that's not enough. And we've always been talking about regenerative design because we're talking about living systems (laughs) that have the opportunity to restore natural capital. And you hear architects and others talking about regeneration now, and I love that they're looking in that way. And I hope that the building industry is moving towards realizing that a building can't get to regenerative design unless they consider the entire site around them and they use the systems to work together to achieve those benefits. You started the firm Regenerative Environmental Design, but it sounds like you had in mind what we now call regenerative design from day one. It took me a while to really understand what they were talking about with sustainability, yeah. And then when I got there, I was like, oh no, we need to do more. And also, all of the people that I was working with, with sustainable sites, who were talking about ecosystem service benefits, that's what they were also saying, just their new words they're using to describe it, which is important. 
Because we've been talking about farming and ranching projects, listeners might think that regenerative design is limited to areas that are more rural in character. But the Midtown Houston project that Heather will speak about now shows it very much applies to urban areas as well. So Houston is huge, right? Midtown was a historic neighborhood in Houston. And during the oil decline in the 80s, it went into disarray. And the neighborhood fell apart and became a place where folks didn't want to live. And so a group of local churches that were there started a grassroots effort to revitalize Midtown. And they worked with the city of Houston and others to bring together urban planners and property owners and residents to form what's known as the Midtown Redevelopment Authority. And from that grew Midtown Park. And what's important to know is that Midtown Park has generated $338 million in new taxable value to the area of Midtown. And because of projects like this, there are now over 9,500 residents, and Midtown is the most walkable neighborhood in Houston, which is pretty fabulous. So tell me what the sustainable site elements that came into being addressed. So Midtown Park was a Grayfield site, meaning that it had previously been developed and that development had been raised. It didn't have a lot of vegetation on it. There were some street trees, but that was about it. So its benchmark of ecosystem service benefits that it was providing, whether those benefits be clean air, clean water, mental health, physical exercising opportunities, all of those benefits were very low. It was not considered contaminated to the point where we needed to contain harmful substances, but also it didn't really offer many ecosystem service benefits. And so there was a lot of opportunity for regenerative design there. And what's super interesting about the park is it's basically a green roof because there is a parking garage underneath the park that is there for the neighborhood, and it's also there for the park. And so when you think about the number of people that can go to this site, there's a great lawn, and it is the place where these residents go to be outside because they're living in more condo-type facilities. They don't have landscapes, so then they come to the park. And on any given day at Midtown Park, you can see folks out on the great lawn doing Zumba. You can see them taking dancing lessons. They'll have community nights and they'll have concerts. You can see families having picnics. You just see people from all over living their lives in these interesting ways. And then right next to this is a stormwater treatment train that is a bio. And it's a living system bio that's managing and treating the stormwater and providing habitat and providing a cooler microclimate. And so that people can very easily go from this space for human health, dealing with socialization and physical activity, over to a space that's more natural and get the mental respite benefits of nature that allow us to be distracted and restore our minds and then get ready to face new challenges. And it's all happening side by side there. Had there been a bayou on the site or was it created through this restoration project? Bayous are how water is naturally managed in Houston. They run through a series of bayous. And so the project team rebuilt a bayou on site 
in a very aesthetically pleasing way to manage the stormwater as an amenity. And that's a real shift, right? Like stormwater is not something to be wasted. It is something to be valued and prized and to figure out how to use it on our site to the greatest benefit possible. And we also have a responsibility to clean it (laughs) before we release it so that whatever contaminants or pollutants it may have, we want the water to leave better. And that's part of that regenerative thinking as well. And one of the things about Midtown Park that I'm super proud of is Houston is a hurricane-prone city. (laughs) And when we were building Midtown, and like I mentioned, it's basically a green roof. There are limited soils. We had to look at that soil profile and understand not only our trees above ground and the biomass above ground, but the biomass below ground. And so for those individual tree systems, tree plants, we had to look at the structure of the roots, the depths of the roots, and how do they grow? And would they do well in that type of environment with those limited soils? And I'm very happy to say that the last major hurricane was Hurricane Harvey. And we didn't lose any trees, and we didn't flood the park. And so that's an example of resilient design that was taken into early consideration when we were designing that park and then also constructing it and now maintaining it. We're still thinking about that resiliency through these storms that we know Houston's going to get. That is a fabulous success story. Yeah, it's a good one. And has it spawned other imitators as a result? What it's spawning, and this is, I think this goes back to your first question, it's spawning Midtown to do more work and to continue to improve and to compete against themselves and to do better. (laughs) And so I'm working on another project in Midtown right now, and it's a 12-block streetscape, and we're putting the road on a road diet, and we're giving back what was once space for cars to people. And looking at how, now that we have all these residents that have moved into the area, what do they need? And how can we use the space to improve their lives? Houston has, most cities do, two major issues with their air pollution. And one is ground level smog and the other is particulate matter. And they're related. And so in order for us to design these systems so that we can improve air quality, we first have to understand what is it that is making the air quality poor? And then how can we use these living systems? And it just so happens that certain types of trees and oaks, pines, or another, pine is a big one that happens to be popular in Houston, they have very high level release of these biogenic volatile organic compounds that lead to ground level smog. And so if we want to improve air quality, then we have to look at our selection of tree species you develop to that special place, to that site, and what's appropriate there. And you look to maximize those benefits for that region. Speaking of sustainable sites and hurricanes, Let's talk about another important project, this one led by Tina Florian on the Gulf Coast that illustrates the potency of regenerative principles. The Lodge at Gulf State Park. So that's an important project. Two hurricanes that came through two or three years apart really destroyed the lodge. And then when the Gulf Coast BP oil spill happened, 
Alabama settlement from that helped pay for this project, which was near and dear to the residents of the Gulf Coast region and Gulf Shores, Alabama in particular. So we had to build the project in the same area as the existing lodge. You couldn't move the building back too far because there's a highway that runs along there. So that was the edge of the project that we had to work with. But the focus of the project was how to build the most resilient building that we could along the Gulf Coast. And an aspect of that was pushing the building as far away from the beach as we possibly could. So many of those projects build really close to the primary dunes and they have very little dunescape between the beach and the building. Whereas the further you move back, not only are you allowing for a healthy dune system that is home to a few endangered species, you're also allowing for a more resilient structure because the dunes themselves help protect the building by having a healthy dune system. So that was a really important project, part of that project. And that project is actually the first sustainable sites platinum project for any hotel. So it's the first hospitality sustainable sites and the first sustainable sites platinum in the Gulf Coast region. So that had a few firsts as well. And it was lead gold on top of that. So it's a really incredible project and it has fared very well in Hurricane Sally in summer of 2020. It did so well that people that worked at the lodge who couldn't stay in their homes because of the hurricane, came to a hotel right along the water that was still operating with generators, limited operation, but offered guest rooms to their staff after the hurricane and was also the primary point for feeding first responders that were working in the region. So it has a really wonderful resilience story, which was the focus of that. And in terms of regenerative, it was all about native landscapes and uh, restoring the dunes, getting rid of the non-native species in the dunes and trying to have a healthy dune ecosystem and support really the ecosystem services that dunes play in that region. Listeners to Living Well into the Future can go to livingwellintothefuture.net and find a link to that project. The residents love it. It's quite different than the old lodge. It has about three times as many rooms, but it uses about a third of the footprint of the old lodge, which was really sprawled out quite a bit. So it's a more dense building, but it it does more with less, which is the goal, I think. When you look at the picture, it, it seems to be right on the beach. Yeah, it's pushed back 220. We tried to get 225 feet away from the primary dune because that allows for enough space for primary dunes and and secondary dunes and wetlands in between. And we work with Biohabitats, a firm that all over the nation does really great work, has worked on probably more living building projects than anybody in the country And they mapped out what a healthy dune ecosystem looks like in that region, did quite a few cross-sections, and we determined our goal was to keep the building 225 feet off the primary dune. We could have built, it should feel like is that it's on the dunes. A big part of the project was trying to rebuild that. 
through native planting. And what they've done is they've, an important part of the project was this engineered berm was put in that is reinforced a primary dune, but that was blocking the sand from building up the secondary dunes. So they cut sections out of the primary dune to allow that sand in to help rebuild the secondary dune system. So that was outside of our scope of work, but it it was really our client, which was the state of Alabama, was our client through the University of Alabama. They really did a lot of work on the dune restoration piece of it. Have you seen it since? Yeah, it's doing well. I was there after the Sally hurricane and it looked really good. So lots of times on these big storms, all of those dunes were just washed away. But the grasses were still intact and it looked really healthy. So it's doing its job. To conclude our discussion of regenerative design, we'll turn to the project that Tenna, Darby, and Heather are all working on, the Middle Trinity Project. The Middle Trinity Project aspires to be the first sustainable site platinum project in Texas and net zero energy. Just like in LEED, where the landscape component is secondary, in sites, the building component is secondary. So for a sites platinum project, one of the aspects that's helping us get to sites platinum is the fact that we have designed a building to be net zero energy. And the client could pursue net zero energy certification as well, but we decided that the sustainable sites certification and specifically sustainable sites platinum, which is our goal, spoke to the mission of the organization and the client and the goals of the client better than any of the other rating systems. So that's something we try and do early in the process is understand what the client's goals are, what their mission is. Lots of times our clients are nonprofits, so they're very purpose-driven organizations. And understanding what their mission is as a nonprofit, in case of Middle Trinity Groundwater Conservation District, their focus is to protect the quality and quantity of groundwater resources for four counties in North Texas. And it's Bosque County, Comanche, Coriel, and Erath counties. Are, those are the four counties they focus on. So we felt that sustainable sites really spoke to the mission of their organization more than any of the other rating systems. And what lengths do you have to go? And I can understand why your client wants it. It's within their mission to promote the sustainability aspect. But what are you doing for this project that you might not do for another one? I think one of the things that come to mind that is unique about the sustainable sites criteria is when you look at carbon, you look at the embodied carbon for the whole project, not just the building, but the whole project, which you do for living building as well. But then you take a really careful look, and Heather Venhouse, who we're working with on this, has done this, of all the plants we're planting and how long it will take for those plants specific to what we're planting on site to sequester the carbon that we've spent building the project. So regenerative very much focused on the land and the aspects of the ecological benefits of the land and landscape, both in the stories it tells and the carbon sequestration, very much focus on watershed protection. This project's called The Ditch, 
It has a ditch running through it, a rainwater sort of ditch that runs through Stephenville, Texas. And it's always been called the ditch. So even though it's the water resource center that we're building, the project is still called the ditch. A very important piece of the project is showing how to protect the watershed of the what's draining off of our site into that ditch that runs through the site and how that becomes an education tool. So this whole project is really based on education because the important part of what Middle Trinity does is educate the public, both in terms of how we use water from all different scales, from the agricultural scale to the household scale. So we have rainwater collection. We've planted native landscapes that won't need any water once they're established. And then the watershed protection aspect of it is also important. But also talking about pollinators, we have a pollinator garden. And then we also have a whole half the site is dedicated to prairie, just to show the benefits of that on the land. And is a landscape architect integrated into your design team on this? Oh, yes, very much. Their scope is larger than ours for this project. They came to Lake Plato, but we immediately paired them up with Studio Outside, the landscape architecture firm out of Dallas that we work with often. And they've been an integral part of the project from day one. There are live oaks, but we also have eight different types of oak trees planted on that project site. We have a black blackland prairie there. We have a lot of native shrubs and things. So trying to look at how long it takes for the site to be regenerative. And part of that is how long does it take for the site to sequester the amount of carbon it took to actually build the project. Let's hear from Darby Prendergast from his perspective as project architect. Some of what has made it such a fun project is that it is a really small scale and we have a very ambitious goal. And I think that just proves that and it's a reminder for all of us that it's an idea that you can bring to any project and you don't necessarily need to have all the funding in the world to be able to build something that's sustainable. Well, this program, how does it go beyond sustainable and resilient to regenerative? It generates all of its own power. So that's that's a pretty baseline system or process. It's a high energy input to get the solar system and all the material that does that. Theoretically, it'll last 50 years or longer. And over that the course of that time, it well more than pays for the cost of the energy that it that it requires to produce it. Similarly, with a water system that catches its water and it just reduces the amount of municipal potable water that needs to go into the project. We do have municipal potable water coming into this project. And that was an instance of just finances that was difficult to to fund the plumbing system to put black water into the plumbing system or or to put rainwater into the plumbing system. So, you know, that there's an example of of a system that had to be streamlined in order to achieve our goals. But uh, I think the big message of the whole project is about, it's about water systems and the larger cycle of water systems. And so this project recharges the aquifer. It's a demonstration. It's an educational opportunity. And so I think that the value of people being able to experience this place and witness the cycle of water as it recharges an aquifer is a narrative in that part of the world that is very important because all of the water in that large region around Stephenville relies on aquifers for all the irrigation and all the municipal water. And so the owners of that project just had a vision for 
really trying to illustrate and make that connection the people who live on that land and the place. And so I think that project is regenerative because it's beyond just the mechanics of resource use, but it's about an ideal, it's about a vision, and it's about an opportunity for education. Heather, from your perspective, how were the elements of the sustainable site certification satisfied in this project? The first one I'm looking at is ensure future resource supply, and mitigate climate change. Prairies, grasslands, do an amazing job of storing carbon in the soil. And so we are building up the carbon bank by restoring that landscape back to a native prairie. We are also bringing in native trees that weren't there before that will contribute to that carbon storage potential and to the habitat and to all the other ecosystem service benefits that trees provide. Managing the stormwater in the way that we are means that landscape will not be irrigated. We're going to show how you can keep a healthy, beautiful landscape without having to use water from the aquifer. And we're also going to show what that landscape can do in times of drought and how it can be resilient. And it may not be bright green and it may not be full of color, but it will survive. When it rains again, it will green back up, it will create seed, it will bloom, it will do all of those things. And it's just helping people really understand the options that they have out there. Now, how does it transform the market through design development and maintenance practices? I think one of the ways in which I'm hoping it'll transform the market is through what we just described about people realizing that there's these broad sweep of native plants that they don't use in their landscapes and why and to create a more market demand for those and carefully monitoring how much water that site uses, which it was designed to do that. We're going to know exactly how much water that landscape is using and to be able to tell people, this is what you get. This is what you look like. This is what it looks like at these different seasons. And this is the way that it's being maintained. And isn't it beautiful? And then through education, connecting them to really understanding the full beauty of it. And so looking at the pollinators looking at the diversity, looking at the change of color and seasons, all the wonderful things that the longer that you watch them, the same landscape, the more that you learn and you realize what you don't know. And you continue to just dig deeper and deeper. And each level is so fascinating. And you've really talked about the third or the fourth enhance human well-being and strengthen the community because this is an educational center and it's a place that's intended for folks to come through programs that will be provided by the middle trinity groundwater conservation district but also through like-minded organizations that they can allow to use this space and to come learn through it and a big part of their outreach is to the schools And I think a lot of our problems could be solved if we would all focus on connecting people to nature. I'm hearing that repeated over and over again. And to get folks comfortable with being in nature and to become biophilic instead of biophobic, they have to play in nature and enjoy nature. Thank you, Heather Venhouse, and thank you to Tenno Florian and Darby Prendergast.
we could go on for another several hours with all that they have to say. Go to our website, livingwellintothefuture.net, where you can find our show notes and leave messages. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to Living Well Into the Future wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find us. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well Into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and WTBRFM 89.7 Pittsfield for their support. Thanks to our production team. Our music is written and performed by Michael Kopenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR, Berkshire Ali, or the LWITF production team.